Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us for today's presentation. My name is Shannon and I'm part of the Community Engagement and Events team at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. I'm going to start with some introductions and I will let you know what's on the agenda for today before passing things over to our speakers in regards to divorce parenting and self-help. They'll be covering the basics, what is self-help, going over status quo, the good, the bad and the ugly, and also covering case um, some case law on this topic as well. And at the end of the presentation, we'll also have a dedicated Q&A segment. And so without further ado, it's now my pleasure to introduce today's host from the greater Toronto area. We have Margie Premiero-Pemintel, Cindy Vergara, and Russell Alexander. Margie has over 15 years of experience in family law. She is a collaborative family law practitioner and an accredited mediator who is passionate about facilitating fair and reasonable settlements for her clients. Margie approaches law in a holistic manner and believes that as a family lawyer, she has a unique opportunity to provide emotionally intelligent advice to clients that will assist them in moving forward with their lives in a better position with the best interests of her clients and their children in mind. Cindy is an associate lawyer at our firm where she practices in all areas of family law. Since being called to the bar in Ontario over 10 years ago, Cindy has been practicing exclusively in family law and is passionate about supporting her clients and achieving goals quickly and effectively in a cost-effective manner with the objective of implementing strategies that are unique to her clients and their goals. For instance, after an out-of-court settlement failed, she vigorously advocated and won an international jurisdiction motion wherein a young child will be attending school in Canada as opposed to a foreign country. Lastly, we have Russell, and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell uses his knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients. So now that you know a little bit more about our team and what we have on the agenda for today, I'm going to pass things over to Russ to get started. All right, <laughs> let's get at it. Let's start with a poll. <clears throat> what is your reason for joining us today? Um, and we're going to uh, leave that up for a moment. You've got a number of options there. Um, but I'm going to throw a question at one of our uh, presenters. Uh, all right, here's one for Cindy. Uh, if I'm prevented from returning to the home, what about my stuff? So what are, what are clients are supposed to be doing in that situation? Well, uh, the question, the answer really is, it, it depends. Like what, what happened? Why are you prevented from returning to the home? Is there a restraining order? Is there an exclusive possession order? Uh, is this a criminal law matter? In situations like this, you're going to want to try to negotiate and come to an arrangement as to when you can return to the property to obtain some of your uh, belongings. So that might require the assistance of the police um, or a neutral third party. And if you're entitled to the home and there's no criminal restrictions, you're entitled to be there. Uh, but I think your advice or your suggestion is a good one. You're going to want to do it in an organized and civil fashion, right? You don't want to be fighting over the couch or the prints on the, the stairs, the front door. All right, let's take a look at what our audience uh, poll results are. So 57% uh, family professional, 21% other professional, 16% going through a separation and divorce, uh, and some other going, um, doing some research for a loved one. So thank you for uh, participating in that poll. Let's get into it. Margie, you got our first topic here. What's happening? What was self-help? What are we talking about today? 
Okay, thanks, Russ. Um, so before we go into a, a deep dive into the actual meats of our conversation on divorce, uh, parenting, and self-help, we want to make sure we have the basic uh, foundation about these issues. So the Divorce Act, first of all, applies only to married people, um, while the Family Law Act and Children's Law Reform Act, which are provincial acts, apply to both married and unmarried individuals. So I don't want to confuse anyone, but the, the bottom line here is that despite the different legislation's um, applicability, depending on marital status at separation, the underlying principles remain the same throughout the legislation, um, especially when it comes to parenting. So for example, when we're dealing with parenting issues, the best interest of the child remains the primary focus and only consideration under uh, you know, the Divorce Act, the Family Law Act, and the Children's Law Reform Act. All right. And what about the lexicon of self-help? Um, this is, you know, when we're in court, this sort of um, has a negative connotation to it, right? At least in my view, if, if a judge says a litigant's done self-help, that usually means they're prepared to make an order um, because you're changing potentially the status quo. We're going to get into that. It also usually is followed by a cost order. So if you're in the litigation process, self-help usually has a negative connotation. Would you agree, Margie? Absolutely. I usually uh, uh, discourage my clients from engaging in self-help because the courts really frown upon that. Um, so, you know, so self-help, uh, you know, for some, for some lawyers, they, they encourage their clients, not encourage, but they, they give them tips on how to, to, to uh, engage in that. But there are certain types of self-help that really you should not engage in. And that's those sorts of situations when you take matters into your own hands and you, know, you impose your own will, um, respecting, for example, parenting arrangements for a child. And that's usually done when it, there's a court order or a separation agreement, but not always. Right. Um, so, Yes, it's, it's completely something that courts do not like, and uh, they don't like it when parents breach terms of their court order or agreement, especially when those breaches are a result of, of self-help measures. And Cindy's going to get into some case law at the end where I think self-help is sometimes a good thing, right? If you're a victim of domestic violence, you need to protect your children. I think I jumped ahead a little bit. Sorry, Margie, I got excited. That's let's okay. talk divorce and separate. <laughs> I just want to get right into it, but let's talk, let's lay the foundation before we get too deep into it. Sorry about that. That's okay. So, um, so in terms of the parenting, uh, parenting time language, um, if you're, if you're not new to our, our series, you, you probably, you know, participated in, in the uh, other webinars where we've gone over the changes in the Divorce Act. But for those who haven't uh, been, you know, if this is a new webinar for you, um, there, the recent changes in the Divorce Act and the Provincial uh, Children's Law Reform Act uh, occurred, I think it was last year. Um, you know, there are significant changes there uh, that are related to parenting. And, and one of those things is a change in terminology uh, from custody to access uh, to decision-making responsibility and parenting time. So there's been a move away from this proprietary ownership language of the old act of custody and access and a move towards more language that really aligns with what custody and access actually meant which within the family law context. Um, and that's important because it, it's again, a shift towards um, you know, highlighting a real focus on the children and which is another expansion of uh, the, the language in the Birth of Divorce Act and the Children's Law Reform Act. 
the language uh, and the criteria when considering the best interest of the child. And that expansion includes, you know, most notably an inclusion of the um, of family violence, uh, the existence and impact of family violence on the parent's ability to parent a child, um, as well as, as their ability to pair, uh, properly co-parent with the other parent. So now the primary focus when dealing with parenting issues um, has been um, and always has been the, the best interest of the child and the changes in the law and, and the parenting language um, in the law um, expands the criteria factors um, to be considered when determining the best interest of the child. So I think we've jumped ahead to self-help and what that means to each of us, but um, this, you know, if we if we had to if we had to define self-help, there's a question okay. in the chat. Um, first of all, it can occur at any point of your separation and divorce, right? Um, and even after you get your divorce order. But I'm just making some notes. Would it be unilateral action taken by one person without notice or consent of the other spouse? Does that seem like a fair definition? Absolutely. Do you agree with that, Cindy? Yes, I do. And self-help can either be, as explained later on, can be justified or, or not justified, which, yeah. which we'll get into. And we're going to spend an hour talking about this, but in my experience, and we're going to jump a little bit let, let, to what status quo means, right? Um, usually when parents separate, that's the most fluid time because a lot of, in a lot of families, there's not, um, there's not an agreement in place. There's no ground rules. Maybe both parents want parenting time or of the children. So it's very fluid. So let's do our poll on status quo. Um, if, if we can pull it up there. Um, what exactly is the status quo? Because this ties into whether or not you're doing self-help, I think. And I think it's an important uh, distinction. So this is probably a good place to start. Uh, we had a question come in about becoming a certified mediator. We have live events on that program. So Shannon will pass on a link. Another question is, where one party paid for the house and it's removed, how is that not considered theft? Well, <clears throat> you still own the house, right? It depends why you're removed. If you're removed by court order, doesn't mean you can't later deal with that property. What's your take on that one, Margie or Cindy? Yeah, it's just a temporary arrangement. It could be a safeguard. Um, there could be serious concerns regarding um, the health and safety of the of the people of the of the children, and that's why uh, one parent is removed from the home. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're not going to get. Um, that doesn't mean the home is taken out of the financial division of of your assets and debts uh, later on. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one more final, thank you everybody for putting the questions in the chat box. Um, one qu final question here before we get to our poll results. Can the parties put a temporary parenting time to schedule in place while they're living under the same roof during a separation? Well, it's a nesting agreement, I suppose, is what we're talking about. Um, do you want to talk briefly, Margie, about nesting agreements and what people do if they're still in the same home but separated? Yeah, I mean, so you could you could have a nesting agreement. Uh, a nesting agreement is where one the, the children remain in their home. It's just the parents that go back and forth. 
um, and they, they've made an arrangement or an agreement as to when um, one parent will be in the home with the children and when the other parent will be in the home with the other children. Um, but I've, I've also had situations where the parties have entered into a temporary agreement, even while they're living under the same roof, mm -hmm. um, because sometimes it's helpful to reduce conflict. I've had, uh, you know, situations where one parent, you know, is insisting on having the children with them, taking them out all the time, and then the child, the other parent isn't, doesn't have any quality time with their child. So in those sorts of situations, it's helpful to have, you know, you'll have the kids in your care, you could do whatever you want to do with them this weekend, and I get to do whatever I want with them the following weekend. So I find it's also helpful, even if they're living under the same roof. I even had a case where they both, they had an, a parenting agreement under the same roof. <clears throat> One parent <laughs> couldn't look after the kids, so the other parent said, okay, well, you can pay me babysitting fees because this oh, is gosh. my non-parenting time, right? So it's <laughs> funny how things play it. But yeah. great question. Thank you for putting the questions in there. Keep them coming. So let's see what our audience thinks about the status quo. All right. Set by court order, 0%. Established uh, by one parent, 3%. Agreement of both parties, 3%. Clear majority here. Current arrangements that have been placed for a significant amount of time. Well, I think that's exactly correct. So if you're gonna change current arrangements unilaterally without notice or the other parent's consent, then you're doing self-help, I think would be a fair characterization. Uh, so let's talk about the importance of the status quo because we can see how the two tie into each other. Cindy, what do we got on this one? So the status quo, I'm gonna step back a little bit and just define it. Um, it can be described as the routine, the environment, the community, the residence, the division of parenting duties, uh, prior to separation. So the courts will look at upholding the status quo, except in instances that it's not in the child's best interest, which will be discussed later on in our presentation, or where there is clear and unequivocal evidence that the parties agree to a different parenting uh, arrangement and residence following their separations. And in circumstances where the status quo is created unilaterally by one parent without the consent of the other, the courts will be reluctant in upholding that new status quo. Excellent, thank you. Um, so let's go to our next slide, the good, Margie. Okay, so like, like Cindy said, you know, uh, the courts will often um, not want to uh, stray away from the status quo. Um, and what I also often tell my clients is to, to think of the parenting, the status quo is like cement, right? Um, the, 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 the longer you let it sit and be, uh, the more difficult it will be to change it. So um, there's a longstanding uh, you know, legal principle that you know, absent any evidence of uh, material change or absent any evidence that an immediate change is needed, the status quo will usually be maintained until a trial. Um, and because of that, like I, you know, as Cindy pointed out, the courts are very reluctant to make uh, parenting orders at the temporary or, temporary or interim stage that grants one party, uh, you know, decision-making responsibility or what we used to call sole, sole custody or to grant one parent a primary residence of the children. Um, and so the status quo could be a good, it could be good for your situation if you want the status quo to continue. And the courts recognize that it is in the children's best interest uh, to maintain the stability of the schedule they enjoyed during the party's relationship for marriage. Of course, there will be some changes to their schedule to account for the fact that the parents no longer reside with each other under the same roof. 
But again, the main goal is to minimize the changes for the children after separation. So the bottom line is if, if you want the arrangement that was in place prior to separation, then the status quo could assist you in obtaining an order, maintaining that arrangement, or alternatively defending against an order that changes the status quo. If I could jump in, Margie. So yeah. Yeah, we often see these cases, the parents disagree what the status quo was prior to separation, right? It's like, oh no, I was taking care of little Johnny full time. And then the other parent says, no, it was equal, right? So is that a common case where the court may order a nesting agreement? Um, I, I find in my experience, the judges, I mean, nesting agreement arrangement is a, a good alternative. Where the parents leave the home. Yes, where the parents um, leave the home and the kids, and the kids stay kids there. Stay in the home, right. Yeah, that's a good arrangement, but sometimes it's not possible for, sometimes parties don't have another place to go, yeah. right? That's the problem, um, like logistically. It's an ideal situation, but for some parents, it's not um, something that's feasible in, in our circumstances. What I find, um, I've had the situation before where one parent wants to establish a new status quo that they think, you know, they're saying is the status quo. Oh, you know, dad never really took care of the kids. Dad was always absent. Dad was always working. Our mom was always working. Uh, you know, we hear that all the time. But for the most part, because courts and lawyers are not, are not present in your home during a relevant period of time, um, I think most courts are going to assume that, um, you know, unless there is clear evidence, like Cindy said, to the contrary, I think most of the time they, they would try to try to maintain some sort of uh, status quo, also because they don't want one party to have that strategic legal um, advantage, right? right? Like I said, cement, and it takes months, you know, if not over a year to get a trial. If you have that parenting place in, in, in place at the, when you get to the trial, it's going to be slightly more difficult to get that changed at that point. Good point. Thank you. All right. So what's our next slide have on um, protective tools? I think this is you, Cindy, right? Yes. So if you're contemplating taking a self-help measure, you want to give the other parent and other lawyer as much notice as possible. And this is so that they're not going to be calling the police and issuing and an Ember Alert is issued. Mm -hmm. So with that notice, you're going to try to work towards an interim temporary agreement. As discussed previously, um, this agreement will be in place while all the other issues in your matter are being finalized for your divorce and separation. And an example of this is the nesting arrangement where, you know, there's so much conflict in the home. The parents agree, let's just keep the kids here. It's so much better for them. Let's just alternate in and out. But as mentioned before, you know, it's dependent on whether the other parents have a place to stay. I believe we have, yeah, a poll. So a poll. Why not do a poll, right? Isn't that time? Mm -hmm. What does the court consider to be an urgent or an emergency matter, right? So let's say there's a breakdown, you need to go to court and get an order in place. The rules say you need to have a case conference, issue your pleadings, maybe several months before you get to see a judge. You're concerned that a new status quo might be created. So one, uh, some of the language courts use is, well, you want a motion prior to case conference that needs to be urgent or an emergency. So let's see what our audience thinks. And while we're doing that, um, we've got a question for Margie. Can I change the locks on the home and keep my spouse safe? We hear that all the time, right? <clears throat> yes. Status quo, what are we doing? Can yeah, sometimes it? they... 
Sometimes a client calls you while they have a locksmith right there. Um, <laughs> um, so you mean you the don't answer- go out and change locks, Margie, for the client? No, no, I don't. I, that's not part of my service. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, the answer to that question is no, especially if you're not married. So it's, it's a matrimonial home if you're married. Um, and under the Family Law Act, you're, it, the Family Law Act says that both uh, spouses have a right of possession of the home, just regardless of ownership. So you can't change the locks. Um, that's, that's one prime example of self-help. You should not engage in that because it's it's really not permitted under the family law, um, under the family law act, and there are consequences to you if you do that. And I think we're going to discuss that further down in, in our later on in our in our discussion. Well, that may be the correct answer, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Let's say, <laughs> you know, your spouse is gone, hasn't been back for five six months. Is, do you have a you know a right to privacy at that point? Could you change the locks and then say if you're coming back, give me notice of when you want to come in and why you're coming in if you need some items? Uh, would that be reasonable? I think that if there were protection concerns, like if you're if you fear the safety and your your safety and you know this person has been taken away, uh, there's a restraining order, criminal restraining order has been lifted. Um, apart from going to court, maybe the immediate, uh, you know, uh, solution is to change the locks. So I, a client of mine, a former client of mine actually told me about this lock that you can install that you can then remove. So it's a temporary way to prevent entry. Um, but in that case, again, th- those sorts of situations, in order to avoid it, it's better to be proactive and right. perhaps get an order to, to allow you to ha- do that. For, right? for exclusive possession, that's... Good, good point. All right, so let's see what our audience thinks. Urgent or an emergency matter? Abduction, 30%. Uh, physical mental abuse, 20%. Financial abuse, 12%. Self-help, uh, lack of notice, 5%. Leaving the jurisdiction, 19%. All of the above, uh, clear majority, 69%. So I think all of the above is the correct answer. Is that what we agreed to when we're preparing for this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So Margie, you mentioned protective orders, which is kind of a nice lead in to our next slide. And this is you, Cindy. Mm-hmm. So if you find yourself in the situation, like one of those situations described in the poll, you're going to be having a conversation with your lawyer about bringing an urgent court proceeding and to um, obtain additional safeguards from the court for your situation. And some of these, and these are in the form of orders. Um, one can be an exclusive possession order, as mentioned previously. That's when the other party can no longer return to the home because you have exclusive possession of it. Another one could be non-contact or restraining orders. So the other party cannot, con- there's restrictions regarding how that other party can contact you and your child and how close they can come to you. Then there are restrictions that can be placed on this parent's parenting time. So their parenting time could either be supervised by a neutral third party or held at a supervised access center. And then there are orders that contain police enforceability clauses. So what this means is, for say for example, the parent, um, the other parent does not return your child at the end of their parenting time. You can then take this court order, go to the police station and the police will now have uh, authority to locate your child and return your child to you. But they do need those police enforceable orders present. 
we have the uh, next slide there. Just just on that. Uh, all right, quick question here. It kind of ties in. Does the status quo is the status quo established by police with aid evidence or investigation? Well, it's not that simple. You got to go to court and get a court order and lay out exactly why you're seeking that relief that you're seeking. Go ahead, Cindy. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, um, I think we're on the next slide here to help reduce conflict. Oh, yeah. So that's right. So you don't have to go to court. What else can we do, Margie? <laughs> You're the uh, peacemaker firefighter, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, so sometimes self-help, when it's justified, again, we're going to go into greater detail later on when self-help is justified. In general, it's not, but in certain circumstances, they are. When it is justified, it can really help reduce conflict between the parties. Um, for example, if one party is having a difficult time processing the divorce, for example, um, you know, time apart will help reduce that conflict, and it will also help minimize the amount of conflict that the children witness. Um, so what are your thoughts on that, Russ? How do you think the self-help helps reduce conflict? Well, I think it's a great idea, especially if both parties have counsel, right? You may not get an agreement on everything, but maybe you can get an agreement until your first meeting date right, and have a meeting two weeks out. So let's come up with some ground rules to get us through the next two weeks. And then you agree that that's, that doesn't constitute a new status quo, right? This is without prejudice just to try to settle things outside of the court system. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, Margie, you and I know this, we get family professionals involved with the family to understand the conflict, improve communication, to really help prepare a plan, not only for the parents, but also the lawyers involved, if you're doing it collaboratively, in terms of what options might work best for this family. So you're generating yeah. options, looking at goals and interests, completely different than what you're doing in court with emotion, where you're taking an adversarial position, usually saying something nasty about the other side and their lawyer. So I think it's a great idea. Um, and I'm certainly uh, all for it. Did you want to add into that, Cindy, before we move on? No, I, I believe you guys cover and covered everything. Okay. Want to hammer out a couple quick questions here. One is, is there a plan in place for family courts to have a starting point of 50-50? No, the Divorce Act and other legislation focuses on best interests of the child. 50-50 was sort of a maximum contact principle that was done away with with the legislative changes. Um, this is kind of an important question. Uh, in case of domestic violence and kids involved, how can I protect my kids uh, and contest emotion from the other parent for parenting time and access? Um, you need to set out what your concerns are. Would you agree, Margie, in terms of your material? Yes. And um, I'm, I'm, talk about the domestic violence, right? How that's... Yeah, and I mean, it's it's kind of difficult to, um, you know, especially on an interim motion, like a, a temporary motion to, to provide that sort of evidence. When you're at a trial, you have, you know, you can cross-examine people, you can have experts, but an interim motion is kind of like, it's based on affidavit evidence, and oftentimes it's, it's they're conflicting, contradictory, right? Yeah. Um, so the best way to do that, I find, is to... Um, and you know, 
some people, some lawyers might disagree with me, but I find that it helps me in my cases is to get as much uh, evidence from other people um, about uh, really bolstering why your plan is better, right? Try to steer away less. You have to go into what the domestic violence is, but really don't use the domestic violence situation to sort of paint the other party as bad parent, good parent. I find it helps when you try to tell the court, this is why my plan is better. And one of those reasons is because there is uh, domestic violence, right? And there could be other information already available, right? Through police reports, children's aids. Uh, Doctor's letters. Right, doc recommendations yeah. from professionals, even what teachers or school officials are observing as well in terms of the children's behavior. So that goes yeah. a long way. The second part of that question was a, a really good one too. So the kids are saying, um, voicing a concern and uh, don't wanna be with that parent. We have a whole uh, live event series just on the voice of the child and the age that the children's wishes should be looked at. So we'll refer that person to that resource. Final question I wanna get to, um, somebody's concerned that the father who has status quo isn't gonna do well in court uh, with the mother. Uh, the plumbing doesn't matter, but the court's concerned about our parenting plans and the best interests of the children. So this idea of a 10-year years doctrine where children should be with their mother from 30 or 40 years ago, I don't think carries much weight. It's more who's got the best parenting plan. So there's bad things we need to talk about too. So let's get into that. So, uh, this can be you, right, Margie? Yes. So we touched upon exclusive possession earlier, um, but just as, uh, you know, as, I, as we said, you know, married spouses have an equal right to possession and to reside in a matrimony home after separation. And that's regardless of who owns the home. Unless the court makes an order granting one person exclusive possession of the matrimony home or the parties agree. Um, so first of all, this equal right to possession of a matrimony home, regardless of ownership, means that one spouse cannot change the locks of a matrimony home. This changing of locks of the matrimony home is a common question that we get. Uh, we got that today, and it's an example of self-help, and don't do it, okay? Don't do it. Um, if your facts warrant exclusive possession, then you need to go to court and obtain an order for exclusive possession. And now, you know, obtaining an order for exclusive possession is not an easy task. Um, because it means that one spouse has to move out and find someplace else to live. Um, and so in order to obtain an order for exclusive possession, the courts will look at both parties' financial situations. If there is other suitable um, and affordable living arrangements that can be made for the, uh, the partner or party that's leaving, um, in, if one partner has been abusive towards the other uh, partner or the children, um, and you know if there are any existing court orders or written agreements between the parties. So if, if there are children, the, the courts would also look at the best interest of the children by paying special attention to um, how the move might affect the children um, and the child's views and preferences uh, or wishes if it's appropriate in those cases. So if you get a, an order for exclusive possession, bear in mind that you might also be responsible for uh, occupation rent to the other party um, that's permitted under the Family Law Act and you will be required to pay the utilities that you alone use. All right, you know what? We haven't done a poll for a while. What do you think? <laughs> Let's get into a poll and we're gonna do some more Q and A. Um, so what's considered leaving the jurisdiction? I think Lori's gonna float this idea around with a 
really explaining it to people what jurisdiction means. Um, it can mean different things to different people. So let's see what our audience thinks. And while we're doing that, let's get to a few more questions from our audience that are coming in online, which are excellent. Thank you, everybody, for sending in um, your questions. All right. Um, let's see which one we're going to pick up here. How soon is it? <clears throat> how soon is it to introduce a new spouse outside of the home to the children while in a nesting agreement? It's not, uh, that's an important question, right? <clears throat> Especially if you're looking to get a contact or parenting time order. Uh, who wants to take that one? What do you think, Margie? New partners? How soon? Oh, new partners. Oh, new partners. I thought I said new parent. I thought that that was... <laughs> Sorry, I think so, it's the new spouse. Or oh, new a new spouse. While you're nesting okay. with the children. And I guess the former spouse is nesting as well. Okay, so I've had this, I've had this question um, a number of times, and I've actually had in a case where uh, we consulted with a, an expert on, on child psychology, and that what that person said was, oftentimes we would want uh, it to be, uh, we want the parent who's introducing their new, uh, you know, girlfriend or partner, or boyfriend, whatever the case might be, um, to the children, they should, they should make sure, first of all, that the relationship is one of permanence. Um, something that they feel is a serious relationship and a serious relationship is often defined as one that is, has lasted at least six months. Yeah. Um, somebody you met online last week, right? Yeah, exactly. You don't yeah. want to expose the children to like a revolving door of girlfriend or boyfriends, right? right? That's not in your best interest. Yeah. Good, good comments. All right. One more quick question. Then we're going to get to our poll results. Well, in order for sale and partition of the home qualifies urgent under the current economic conditions. Well, you know, the economic conditions two months ago, we're getting multiple offers on a house. Yeah, some people today, the economic conditions are that houses aren't selling as quick. So I don't know, Cindy, Margie, I don't think uh, that would qualify as urgent. Uh, what do you guys think? I think it would depend on is the other party frustrating the sale of the home like do does the court need to get involved and say this party no longer has to consent to the sale right. um so i think it would really depend on what's happening margie well um to in, you know piggybacking on what cindy said it's also i think depends on uh, the financial if it's a, a dire financial situation right um if if the sale of the home is required um, because one person needs to access their, their equity in it and uh, they've been, it's been too long um, and they would suffer a financial uh, you know, dire circumstance. And I think that would uh, be an urgent issue. Right. My, my gut reaction to this would be, I think a judge would tell you to case conference the issue before a sale would be considered. And maybe if it's available in your jurisdiction to get an urgent case conference date. Uh, really, the only urgency would be if you need to access your capital for some financial reason to buy another home or to meet your living expenses. Uh, kind of an interesting uh, interesting question, so thank you for that. All right, let's see what our poll results are. Uh, leaving the jurisdiction, uh, majority is all of the above, so moving to another country, moving out another province outside the jurisdiction of the court. Jurisdiction of the court is kind of a, a 
a funny thing. Usually it's, that's usually a two hour drive, right? For most courts would be the jurisdiction. It'd be longer if you're up north. Uh, school district, only 2%, 50 kilometers away. All right, so what's the answer to this question? Could be either of them, right? But if you're leaving, I guess if the move is gonna affect parenting time in some meaningful way uh, that's already been established, uh, then that's gonna trigger likely uh, the ability for the court to step in. What would you think, Cindy? Yes, yeah, I, I would agree. If it's gonna impact parenting time of the other parent, then um, you have to act, you have to act quickly right. uh, to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, Margie, thoughts? Well, at, at jurisdiction, um, when I think of the word jurisdiction, leaving the jurisdiction, uh, yes, it's, it's leaving the children's primary or habitual residence um, where they're used to living day in and day out. Right. Um, and yes, when, if it impacts, especially if it impacts the other parents' um, parenting time, especially if there's an agreement or a court order. Or schooling even, right? If you're moving them out of school district, that could be significant as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the ugly. Um, Cindy, ugly sides of self-help. <laughs> yeah, so um, every parent's worst nightmare. What if your child goes on vacation and uh, doesn't come back? What do you do? So let's assume for the purposes of this presentation that your child's habitual residence is Canada. What you would do depends on where your child is being held. Uh, so if the country is a signatory to the Hague Convention of Civil Aspects of International Abduction, the Hague Convention, that opens up another process to you to facilitate the immediate return of your child. So that process does not deal with issues of major decision-making, it's just return of child to where they, where they uh, normally reside. So in order to qualify for this process, both countries have to be a signatory to the Hague Convention. Uh, and your child must be under the age of 16. So if you're going to partake in this process, you're gonna be contacting a, a special body created under the Hague Convention here uh, in your country. And here would be the Central Authority of Ontario. So the Central Authority would be kind of like the middle, the, the liaison between you and the, uh, the other country. And they would work towards uh, having the child voluntarily return to, to Canada or if that's not possible, then uh, a Hague a court application would be, uh, a Hague um, court process would be commenced in that foreign jurisdiction and you're gonna be needing to retain foreign counsel. Now there are certain circumstances where a foreign court can refuse to return the child. And some of those circumstances are, you've waited for more than a year to commence this process. You acquiesce to the move or the retention there is a grave risk of harm of your child being returned to you, or you don't have rights to custody, or you never exercised rights to custody at the moment that your child was withheld or uh, didn't return, or your child is of the age and maturity, and they have articulated that they, they do not want to be returned to your care. Now, these exceptions do have a limited um, interpretation. The courts are not going to go out of their ways to find um, to to. They're not going to go out of their way to say you fall under one of these exceptions. Now, what if your child was taken to a country that is not a signatory to the Hague Convention? What are you going to do? Well, you're going to be contacting the local police. You're going to have them 
uh, ascertain the, the whereabouts of your child and also uh, their wellness to make sure that everything's all right. Then you're going to be taking that information and you're going to be going to the RCMP. The RCMP has a special database um, that they share with their international partners. So your information will be uploaded there and hopefully those international partners can assist in facilitating the return of your child. Then you're going to be contacting the Canadian consulate. So the Canadian consulate can provide you with information as to what to expect when you're deal dealing with this foreign country within this type of situation. And they may also have foreign counsel that they can recommend. And then you might also need a Canadian lawyer. And that depends on if you have a valid court order that states uh, that describes your rights to your child. On the next slide, we talk about what are some preventative measures so that you don't end up in a situation like this. Well, time is of the essence. There are new uh, provisions under the Divorce Act that state if a parent is going to relocate with your child, they have to give you 60 days notice. And from that time, you have 30 days to object. Now you object by commencing a court proceeding. So when you receive this notice, don't sit on it. If you plan to object, retain a counsel right away and start your court, start your objection. The other thing there is that if you have serious concerns about your child not returning, going on vacation, not returning, then one of the things you can do is say, you know what, I'm not going to allow my child to travel to a country that's not a signatory to the Hague Convention, given the difficulties that you are going to have trying to get them to return. You're also going to be trying to obtain, well, you should be obtaining as much information as possible as to where your child's going to be staying and who the other family members where they're going to be staying, uh, who the other family members are in this jurisdiction. Because uh, most of the times, those family members are going to be facilitating the voluntary return of your child. Now, there is also, um, there are also some passport controls that you can explore. In Canada, you can contact the passport office and let them know that um, you have concerns about your child being removed from the jurisdiction or being abducted. So what they will do is uh, register your child's information on their system so that if there's a new passport application being uh, submitted for the child, they're going to take extra precautions. This does not invalidate any current passports that the child has, but it's just it's, it's an additional level of security. And then we have if your child has a dual citizenship, you can contact the foreign uh, consulate and request that they don't issue any visas or passports to your child due to the following reasons. You are, you are going to need counsel at that point to draft uh, that letter there. And so uh, in situations like that, the foreign consulate might not um, abide by your request, but it is a tool available to you. I believe we have a poll next. Yeah, okay. It's just a couple of questions coming in on mm -hmm. our, uh, are there, I guess with respect to the uh, the um, objection, even you don't, you do, going to court is one way to do it, but put them on written notice as well. Either the lawyer or the other spouse say, I object to you relocating little mm -hmm. Johnny to wherever. And you can rely on that. And then one of the questions is, are there exceptions to the notice provisions in the legislation? I think the judge has discretion to lengthen and shorten the, the um, notice provisions in some circumstances. And if you look at the Divorce Act, there's some forms there, I think, that will be helpful. So 
Uh, here's our final poll of the day. Thank you everybody for participating. After what you've learned today, is self-help a good thing or a bad thing? I guess depends if you're doing the self-help or not doing the self-help might inform the answer, but <clears throat> let's leave this up for a minute. Question for you, Margie, that also came in ahead of time. Thank you, everybody. What is the, what is the status quo if there's been no agreement or court order in place after separation? We've been separated for two years and wouldn't have one child together. Good question. What's your answer? Well, I'm just going to remind everyone about my my analogy of the cement. Um, so, if your ex partner, the the other parent, has acquiesced, you know, has basically done nothing to state that he or she does not agree with this arrangement whereby the child lives primarily with you, and, and based on the question, it's been like two years. Um, I think that that person can be found to have acquiesced to that arrangement and therefore uh, the status quo would be what you have in place today. It's, it, the status quo is a factual arrangement, right? Not, it's not always a date of what was happening at date of separation, but it could be, for example, like in this situation where this has been in place for two years post-separation, that is now the status quo. Yeah, right. One parent leaves the home. <clears throat> the other parent, whether it's a mother or father, is caring for the children, and it's been two years, I think you've created a new status quo, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you for that, Margie, and for sending the question in. Uh, let's take a look at our results. So what you've learned today, is a good thing or bad thing? 71% um, says it depends. Isn't that law school 101? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Golan was going on a bit that last week when they were asking <laughs> really defense. I don't know. 13% uh, bad, 9% good. Um, I think that's probably the correct answer, right? Depends on the facts. It depends. Uh, before the court or or of that particular family. Would you agree with that, Margie? Absolutely. It, it's, so, it's so fact specific that every case will be determined based on its own merits and its own facts. Um, right. Not one size does not fit all when, it, especially when it comes to parenting issues. And we have some cases that are going to talk a little bit about um, how self-help has been treated by the court. Cindy, good thing, bad thing. Do you agree? Depends. Law school answer. It depends. <laughs> uh, it really depends on the circumstances. You might be required to do it. Uh, and um, other times you are going to be, uh, you're you're not going to you're going to be surprised at what the court will say about uh, about your actions. All right, thank you for that. Let's get into some case law, and then we're going to save some more time for Q and A. Thank you, everybody, for submitting your Q and As throughout the program. You still have time to send in your questions, and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, so, first case I think is mine. NVF. Um, this is uh, an interesting case where there were young children under five. Uh, mom was, they were living in um, Dubai. Mom comes home with the kids uh, for extended summer holiday and keeps them here. Goes to the Ontario court, says, I don't want the kids going back to live with their dad in Dubai. So this is uh, gone to the court of appeal Court of Appeals said, send them back. Uh, Dubai is going to decide 
custody and access based on best interests. Mother um, sought leave and, and obtained leave to the Supreme Court of Canada that has ordered an expedited hearing of the matter. And I think we're going to be getting this decision a, any day. So it'll be spot on what we're talking about today. Mom did self-help, kept the kids here from a summer vacation, says don't send them back to Dubai, have lived in Dubai with their dad prior to that. Ontario Court of Appeals says they go back. Uh, Supreme Court of Canada may change, uh, may, may disagree with the Ontario Court of Appeal, and we can get some interesting case law around self-help. Uh, so look for that. It's coming down the pike real soon. Um, Clement, Clement, I think this one, oh, sorry, there was another case I threw in here um, just for some fun because we can't all be serious all day. Uh, so this, these two MJ v. TJ cases involves um, an East Coast decision and uh, a court order and agreement regarding uh, dog visitation. So we're not talking about children. Uh, and the facts are kind of interesting. It includes uh, a refusal to return the dog. You know, we laugh, but dogs and cats are huge, right? Like this, these are real, these are like children for some families. And uh, very, very important issues. Court, court, most courts treat them as property, not setting up parenting plans for the pets. But uh, this particular case, there's a refusal to return a dog it involved a fake dog's death certificate, uh, procedural wranglings, and contempt of court. So <laughs> if you want, want to have uh, an interesting case to read, I'm throwing that out there uh, just for some fun. And I think we have some more serious cases. Uh, Clement and Clement, this is your pick, Cindy. Yeah, this was my pick. And I chose it because it stands for the proposition that a parent who engages in self-help, despite the best interests of the child, calls into question their own parenting skills and judgment. In many cases, courts can conclude that these spiteful, selfish, manipulative parents can't be entrusted with the custodial arrangement or custodial authority. Uh, because they might abuse it. So in this case, uh, the parties, the children had um, essentially an equal time sharing arrangement. The mother became annoyed with something that the father did. She got the police involved. The father was charged with mischief um, because he left some property on her, on her doorstep that was hers. Um, and then she read into that to say, you know, you cannot, all your access has to be supervised. She uh, removed the child, one of the children from the school, um, kept, her, kept the child home because she was afraid that the father was going to take the child after he found out what she did. And then she removed, uh, she registered the child in school in her city. Uh, and she brought up a whole bunch of allegations against the father that were historical and not, uh, not proven. And the court found, you know what, you, you can't have custody of your children anymore how you used to. And they gave the father temporary custody of the children and the mother only saw the child on the weekends, every other weekend. Yeah. You know, I'm just thinking about your comments, you know, habitual residence, that concept is so important to self-help, right? Because we see parents who take kids out of province, whether it's East Coast or West Coast, and commence a court proceeding in that other jurisdiction. And now we have a battle over jurisdiction where the kids habitually reside. So timing is really important, right? If it's within a few days or a few weeks or even a month, 
the original jurisdiction, I think, would have habitual residence, but you sit on your hands for two years, right? And then the children get established out West. That's going to be a hard argument to say, you know, they haven't created a new status quo. Um, all exactly. right, Corbett or Corlett, this one's yours too, Cindy. Yeah, I included this because I wanted to highlight that there are, there could be significant cost consequences, cost consequences if you engage in self-help that is not warranted or justified. So here we had a father who went against a consent order uh, that detailed, you know, the kids environment, their status quo, and what to do if there was an issue with respect to what to do if they, were, if they requested a change. So the father completely ignored it. He said he was taking the kids on a two to three week vacation in Florida. While he was there, he refused to return them to Ontario, and he then enrolled the children in school in Florida. So the court was the court found that the father deliberately violated the court order. He caused enormous distress to the children and significant stress and expense on the mother who had to bring an urgent proceeding. Then the court had to take the, the stance that they could not they could not condone or encourage this type of self-help. And they ordered the father to pay a greater proportion of the mother's costs to bring the emergency proceeding, and it had to be payable immediately. Before we get to Margie's case, um, <clears throat> what we do, just think a, a hypothetical situation, let's say, you, because the court orders aren't suggestions, right? They need to be followed. Um, it's not a recommendation, it's not a suggestion, you need to follow a court order. But, but what about the family who has a parenting and contact order in place, <clears throat> or the old language custody and access, but they haven't been following it for three years? right? It may have said kids are going to be with dad, but now the kids are with mom, right? And then you get three years later, dad says, I want to enforce the court order. <laughs> That's not really self-help at that point. Would you agree? Because they've created a new status quo, even though it's contrary to the court order and the court order hasn't been updated. It doesn't reflect what was happening back at home. What do you think about that scenario, Margie? I think that uh, in, we see this a lot, and I think one of our uh, associates here had the same case, uh, something happened similar in their case. I think there is a new status quo, right? Just yeah. by the passage of time and an, an acquiescence on the other, the other parents' part, um, they didn't want, they're content not to follow the agreement um, and allow this situation to, to continue for three years. Um, I, think it, I think from a court's perspective, they're going to, the, the agreement is, not completely irrelevant, but I think they're going to look at what is in the best interest of the children, and that's maintaining the stability that they're used to for the past few years. Yeah, I agree. Blake versus Ray's final case of our presentation. You, Margie, I think this was your pick. Yes, I chose this because this is an example. We were talking about in the earlier cases about breach of a court order. This is a situation where a judge actually you know, clearly said that uh, she didn't condone the mother's self-help um, actions, but uh, in any event granted what the, the mother uh, wanted. And it's, this is a very specific sort of situation. So the parties had been engaged in very difficult litigation over their 13-year-old son for most of his life. Um, there had been two trials and 45 court attendances or events since the original trial decision. Um, and there was a court order granting the mother sole decision-making um, and a week about res residential arrangement with the father. 
Um, the mother subsequently brought a motion requesting an order permitting her to relocate with the child to Kitchener. She was unsuccessful on that motion. Five, five years later, she again brings a motion, again requesting to relocate with the child. Um, and while that motion was pending, the father was charged with assaulting the child. In, in response, the mother then breached the court order and relocated the child to Kitchener, which is contrary to the very specific terms of the order that the child was to reside in Barrie. And so at the time that the motion was heard, the mother and child were living in a shelter in Kitchener. So although the judge was very troubled by the breach of the court order and uh, you know, she found that there is absolutely compelling circumstances justifying the mother's self-help actions. Uh, and based on that fact, the judge was satisfied that the best interest of the child mandated that he continue to live with his mother in the Kitchener-Waterloo area. Um, and what helped in this case was that the mother's lawyer brought a motion to change as soon as possible and conceded that she was in breach of the court order and that she prepared to accept any, accept any uh, sort of penalty that the court found um, soft, soft fit to impose on her for breaching of the order. So this case was not to be read as the court sanctioning uh, or agreeing with self-help. Uh, Justice Waldman was, uh, goes on to some distance to make that clear. It does, however, stand for the proposition that there are sometimes very compelling circumstances which would justify a breach of a temporary court order and you know, uh, self-help. So that's why I picked this case. Important case. We spent an hour on that case. So. Uh... <laughs> All these cases are going to be provided in our show notes, but let's wrap this up. Here's our host right on time. Welcome back, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you uh, to the three of you for all of that very useful information. We hope that everyone enjoyed. We just want to thank everyone for your participation today. We got a lot of great comments and questions that came in. And um, we did try to get to a lot of questions throughout the presentation, but just a quick question um, that came in in advance I'd like to sneak in here would be, what if the parent abuses drugs? Is my first step going to court to limit their parenting time? Depends, right? It depends. It depends if it's marijuana. Maybe not. If it's a harder drug that's going to affect the ability of that parent, parent to parent, uh, certainly. Um, quick answer, Cindy, what do you think? Uh, I agree with it. It depends. But this it can be an opportunity to negotiate an interim agreement while that other parent gets help and to safeguard right. the child. So that would be my response there. Good answer. We've got one o'clock, Shannon. Fantastic Great. work as always. Thank you. Thanks again to our panelists and thank you to all of our audience members who joined us today. And if you do have any questions about our virtual event series or any comments for our team, please feel free to reach out to me at shannon at russellalexander.com. We do host our virtual event series bi-weekly on Wednesdays at 12 p.m. on a variety of family law topics. So just want to thank everyone again and we hope you all have a wonderful day. Great job, Cindy. Thank you for your time. Margie, thank you so much. Shannon, perfect as always. Really appreciate everybody showing up today. Bye. Have a good, a have a good afternoon.